team. And thank you again for coming this morning. Appreciate the effort you've made. And uh, I feel bad that you have to sit out there wearing those masks. But if anybody wants to replace me, I'll go down there. And Actually, I'd rather be up here without this thing on. But this morning, we want to finish what we started last week. Actually, what we started over six months ago now. We are now at the end of our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. So if... Um, You want to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to be focusing on the epilogue this morning. We started last week. We're going to finish up this morning by looking at verses 9 through 14 once again. As you turn there, allow me to remind you what the purpose of the epilogue was in terms of the reason why the author wrote it right here at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he wants this book to have a lasting impact in our lives. He is convinced that the end of the matter can change your life. He's not interested at this point in providing us with more information or examining some aspect or feature or experience of life under the sun. The writer in these final words is attempting to point us in the right direction, to goad us, if you will, give us a jab with that long pointed stick. He wants to spur us on so that we will live lives that please and honor God in light of what we've studied in the book of Ecclesiastes. Specifically, he's attempting to influence our assessments here in these verses, our impressions, our attitudes. And he's doing that because he's absolutely convinced that your assessments will either invite or repel personal transformation. It will influence the impact of this book in your life. I was listening to a podcast recently, in fact, just in the last couple of weeks, in which a seminary professor slash pastor was explaining the difference between spiritual formation and sanctification. Basically, he was saying that spiritual formation is our part of the process. Sanctification is what the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is doing in our lives in the lives of believers. In fact, the Apostle Paul affirms as much in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, when he goads his readers with these words, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Work out your salvation, for it is God that is at work in you. It's our job to develop habits, to put ourselves in places and surround ourselves with people and circumstances as much as we are able that will invite the Holy Spirit to do his transformational work in your life and in mine. That's the best that you and I can do. That's spiritual formation. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 presents the other side of the equation. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Here it is. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There you have it. We work out our salvation as the Spirit of God transforms us from within, from inside out. This epilogue, at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, is attempting to facilitate that very process. It's attempting to set us up for success. It wants us to invite the Holy Spirit to use this book in the transformational process. So if you're able, please stand with me for the reading from God's Word. I'll begin reading at verse 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Read through to the end of the chapter. Beginning then at verse 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of the wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned The writing of many books is endless. An excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or or evil. This is God's word to us today. Please be seated. Father, the psalmist's assessment of your word is both informative and inspiring. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Father, may the words of the psalmist become our testimony, especially as it relates to this book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to study it together. And may it now have a lingering, life-changing influence in our lives. May your spirit illumine and empower us, even as we focus on these verses this morning. Help us to understand, 
so that we might be able to respond appropriately to this portion of your holy and inspired word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Your assessments will either invite or repel personal transformation. Last week it was your assessment of the messenger in verses 9 and 10. And your assessment of the message in verses 11 and 12. This morning we'll be considering your assessment of the mandates and your assessment of the motivation. Let's look first at the mandates. Knowing that your assessment of them will either invite or repel personal transformation. There are actually three imperatives found in this epilogue at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. You may want to highlight them or underline them or circle them. In verse 12, it is translated in my New American Standard Bible, be warned. That's the verb. It's an imperative. Be warned. And you can probably guess the other two found in verse 13. Fear and keep. Those are the two verbs that are imperatives. Fear God and keep his commandments. So the, in the end, or as the text puts it, in conclusion, or the English Standard Version says, the end of the matter, it can be reduced to just three commandments. These are not suggestions to be considered or options from which we can choose. Your assessment of these three imperatives. Commandments or mandates will determine the transformative impact of this book of Ecclesiastes in your life. And that's why the author is attempting to influence your assessment right here at the end of the book. So let's take a closer look at each one of these imperatives. Verse 12. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The New International Version translates it, be careful. You may recall that we talked a little bit about this warning last week. The author is advising us not to get caught up in all the endless offerings of more and more information. And let us not forget when the book of Ecclesiastes was written. It's almost 3,000 years ago. Can you imagine what the author would have been writing if he were living at this time in the year 2020? In the midst of the information age that has been absolutely soaked, immersed in the accelerant of modern technology. In 2013, an article appeared in Forbes magazine that suggested or estimated that between 600,000 and 1 million books were being produced in the United States of America alone. 
600,000 to a million per year. And that's already seven years ago. Possible, quite possible that that's doubled by now. It's just ridiculous. The writing of many books is endless. And what is the author's advice? You need to manage this distraction. Be careful. The information competing for your attention is endless and exhausting. Excessive devotions to books is wearing to the body. The remedy, notice verse, how verse 12 begins. But, but is a contrast beyond this, beyond what? Well, look back at the previous verse. Beyond the words of wise men given by one shepherd. In other words, avoid the endless and exhausting offering of more and more information. This competing for your attention. Beware of that. Give it to the words of wise men given by one shepherd. In other words, focus on the scriptures. That is the remedy. Rather than listen and be distracted and overwhelmed by all these other competing voices vying for your attention and influence in your life, they're wanting to speak into your life and influence it. Rather than that, rather than waking up, grabbing your mug of coffee and scanning the latest headlines, pick up a copy of the 66 books. Turn in your Bibles. Begin your day with a psalm. A chapter from the book of Proverbs. Something for your heart, book of Psalms. Something for your head and hands, the book of Proverbs. After all, there's nothing that compares with this book. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Remember being in Bible school, they would tell us there are only two eternal things on the face of this earth. People and the Word of God. Josiah was telling me a couple of weeks ago when they arrive at Dallas Theological Seminary now, they say, people and the Word of God and what you post on the internet. In other words, they're cautioning freshmen, be careful what you're posting because it's there. It's going to stay there forever. Anyway, that's, a, that's one no charge. In addition to reading the scriptures, allow them to become the primary filter in your life. Remember the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11? We are told, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. By making the scriptures our primary reading material, the Bible then can become a filter 
through which all other inputs coming into our lives can be measured. Become a Berean, examining the scriptures to see if what you are hearing and reading is true. Can it be trusted? Does it measure up to the standards that God has revealed in his word? Be warned. And secondly, fear God. What does that mean? Here's what I would say is sort of the, the classic definition. To fear God is to honor and rever him. To worship him as God. To fear God is to honor and rever him or revere him. To worship him as God. In other words, we're to give God the respect that he deserves as the almighty, sovereign, creator, and sustainer of all things. Listen to the words of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 10, verse 6 and 7. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Rhetorical question. Indeed, it is your due, exclamation mark. For among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. So what does fear God look like in your life? In Abraham's life, it meant being prepared to sacrifice his one and only son of promise. In Moses' life, it meant removing his sandals when he was told that he was standing on holy ground. In Joshua's life, it meant commitment. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In Isaiah's life, it meant declaring, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In King David's life, it meant confession, repentance, and a plea for forgiveness. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. Psalm 51, verse 4. And for demons, they believed and shuddered in James Chapter 2, verse 19. So what does fear of God look like in your life? Beloved, I do have a concern. I think in more recent years, there's been a gradual shift amongst evangelical Christians that has domesticated God. Perhaps it is that 
swing of the pendulum, the grace pendulum. Or perhaps it's our attempts to, to make biblical Christianity more relevant or palatable to the culture in which we live. Maybe it's our perception of the life of Jesus Christ as presented in the four gospel accounts. It's caused us to lose sight of God's earlier self-revelations as presented in our Old Testament scriptures. It is, after all, the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus is God dressed in human flesh. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it declares that he is the exact representation of that God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, we read these words. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. The word translated fear is the Greek word phobos, from which we get our English word phobia. People have all kinds of phobias. Acrophobia, the fear of heights. Aerophobia, the fear of flying. Clusterphobia, the fear of being confined to a small space or in a crowded room. Hemophobia, fear of blood. Hydrophobia, the fear of water. Theophobia, hmm, fear of God. All this to say, there seems to be a familiarity with the God that we worship among believers that allows us to treat him with a flippant indifference. I remember being blown off as a parent by teenage sons with, whatever, Dad, whatever. Sometimes I wonder if as believers were tending to that end of the spectrum. Beloved, we need to fear God by honoring him and revering him and by worshiping him as God. But also we need to understand that he is quite capable of giving us exactly what we deserve. And maybe it's just me. I don't know, that rebellious streak within me. But that helps me to live as I know that I ought to live. And I know, as believers, we are no longer children of wrath. We are not. But God still disciplines those he loves. And discipline is never pleasant at the time. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. And I'm not suggesting that we begin to fear God like that boogeyman that 
lived under our beds when we were kids. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I do think we should fear him in the same way that you fear those flashing lights that all of a sudden appear in your rearview mirror and that cause you to exhale a sigh of relief when they blow by you rather than pull in behind you. Be warned and fear God. The third imperative, keep his commands. Each of these commands appears to build on the other one, on the previous one. You will not fear who you do not know. In the scriptures, we have God's com- complete revelation of himself. Maybe not all that we would like to know, but all that we need to know until we get to heaven and meet him face to face. It's all been revealed. And as our knowledge of him increases, so should our fear of him. And the more we know him and fear him, the more we will want to obey his commands. Remember Joshua's marching orders as God prepared him to lead Take over the leadership from Moses, greatest leader Israel had ever known. He's preparing Joshua to step into Moses' shoes and lead them into the promised land. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have success. And verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Notice the antidote for discouragement and fear is obedience And becoming aware of God's inescapable presence. Fearing him. Rather than people and circumstances. In John chapter 14 verse 21 we have Jesus in his own words saying. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. And will disclose myself to him. Obedience is to the fear of God. What unity is to loving one another. Did you catch that? Obedience is to the fear of God. What unity is to loving one another. Jesus, again, in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, commanded his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
In John, that was in John chapter 13, 34, and 35. In John chapter 15, verse 12, he says, This is my commandment to the same individuals, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Two verses later, in John chapter 15, verse 17, This I command you, that you love one another. Two chapters later, Jesus has finished in the upper room with his most intimate followers. Judas has left, so it's the 11 remaining disciples. They've left the upper room. They're making their way, it's nighttime, they're making their way through the streets of Jerusalem where they'll go down the Kidron Valley and up into the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas will appear and betray Jesus. As he walks through those darkened streets, Jesus begins to pray. And he prays first for himself, then for the remaining 11, and then he prays for those who will believe as a result of their message. He's praying for you and I. We believe as a result of their message. And this is what he prays. That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's oneness. Or unity for which Jesus prayed. Is the visible expression or manifestation of the love he commanded them to have for one another. In the same way, obedience is the visible manifestation of our fear for God. You want to know how much you fear God? The gauge on the dashboard of your life is obedience. Be warned. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Your assessment of these mandates will either invite or repel personal transformation. Look finally at verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Your assessment of this motivation will either invite or repel personal transformation. An awareness of God's pending judgment ought to be motivating factors in our lives. You may want to underline or highlight these words. Every act and everything which is hidden. What do those indicate to you, those words, those phrases? God's pending judgment will be comprehensive. No rock will be left unturned. You may be able to fool some of the people some of the time. In fact, if you're really good, you may be able to fool all of the people some of the time. But you and I, we fool God none of the time. He knows. The things that are hidden and the things that have already been exposed. 
Listen to the psalmist as he reflects on this. God's comprehension of all that is happening in his life. Oh Lord, you've examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus claimed God's knowledge of your life includes the numbering of the hairs on your head. In Luke chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, he offers this warning. The time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. God's pending judgment is comprehensive. Secondly, God's pending judgment will include you. It'll include me too. As we come to the scriptures, we understand that God used some 40 different authors from three continents coming from various walks of life, from kings to farmers, like it just goes on and on. Over a period of nearly 2,000 years. Beloved, this is a progressive revelation. King Solomon, as wise as he was, did not have the information that you and I have today. But what he did know he was absolutely convinced of was that there would be a time of accountability. We would be held accountable for the way we live our lives, our actions, our reactions, our words and our deeds. Philip Ryken put it this way, if there is no God, there is no judge. If there is no judge, there will be no final judgment. If there is no final judgment, there is no ultimate meaning in this life. Nothing matters. And in that case, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If this is really all there is, Get all you can while the getting's good. Live only to satisfy your appetites this day and then lay down and cease to exist. The book of Ecclesiastes. Indeed, the scriptures as a whole offers a very different picture of reality. You and I 
we live in a mist. But there is more. Much more. According to Unger's Bible Dictionary, a careful, inductive study of the scriptures, the 66 books that we have in front of us, will uncover at least eight distinct judgments of God. Number one, the judgment of the cross. Number two, the judgment of believers resulting in discipline. Number three, the judgment seat of Christ where believers' works will be evaluated, the works done in the flesh. Number four, the judgment seat of self. Number five, the judgment seat of the judgment of the nations. Number six, the judgment of Israel. Number seven, the judgment of angels. And number eight, the grand finale, the great white throne judgment. Solomon did not have access to all this information, to the completed God-inspired written revelation that you and I have today. He would not have been aware of these eight distinct judgments of God. But he clearly understood that God was going to hold every one of us accountable for the way in which we live our lives. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 reads, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, after this comes judgment. There is no escape. And that is why the message of the gospel is so crucial. It includes both bad news and good news. The bad news is that we're all sinners and that the punishment for sin is death. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says that all have sinned. We've all missed the mark. God has set the standard of perfection that he requires for relationship with him. And if that standard was to clear the Grand Canyon, and you could jump 20 feet, and I could jump 10, it wouldn't make any difference. Because we both missed the standard. Doesn't matter how good you are, you're not perfect. And you missed the standard. And the penalty for missing that standard is death. Romans 6, chapter chapter 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. If I was to hire you for minimum wage, you work the entire day, the wages I owe you is eight times minimum wage. You've earned it. And we've all earned death. That's the wages of sin. But after the bad news, when there's bad news, there's always good news. And the good news is that Christ died for us so that we can be saved through faith. There was no way that you and I could come to God, so he came to us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it reads, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's like being diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I come to you and say, I'll take your cancer 
in my body and I will die so that you can live. Jesus took our sin and died in our place. And Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 reads that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. You are saved when by faith you start trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. When you entered this worship service this morning, you came in, picked out a seat, and entrusted yourself to that pew. What is keeping you from entrusting your life to Jesus Christ this morning? Acknowledge that you are a sinner. We all are. There's no exceptions. Ask for God's forgiveness. Repent of your sin. Want nothing more to do with it. And then begin by faith, trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. If you will do that, the Bible tells us that you have crossed from death into life in John chapter 5, verse 24, meaning that from being separated with God to eternal life, which means both a quantity and quality of life. It begins right now with a brand new relationship with God. Now, just so that there are no surprises, there will still be an evaluation of the things believers have done while in the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. That's the judgment seat of Christ. But listen to this assurance in spite of that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. How good is that? God's pending judgment is both comprehensive and inclusive. This epilogue to the book of Ecclesiastes serves as an endorsement of the message the messenger, the mandates, and the motivation. The writer is attempting to influence your assessment because he knew your assessments will invite or repel personal transformation. And I'll repeat what I said last week. God can reveal it in his word. A wise man can write it like Solomon. I can preach it to the best of my ability, but it is your assessment of the messenger, the message, the mandates, and the motivation that will determine the impact that the message of the book of Ecclesiastes has in your life. I trust and pray 
that the end of the matter is the beginning of a continuing personal transformation that will last for the rest of your life as we've studied this book of Ecclesiastes. It's informed us. It's been inspirational. An exposition of life under the sun, life in the mist. Let's pray together. Father, you are a God who has disclosed mysteries of life for our benefit. Apart from your revelation, we would remain in the quagmire of our own ignorance, stumbling through life in the dark. Thank you for teaching, for approving, for the correction and training in righteousness that we have received as we've made our way through this book of Ecclesiastes. May it become a lingering, enduring influence in our lives. May we find ourselves returning to the book of Ecclesiastes with a a new and a fresh understanding. And may your spirit continue to bring it to mind and use it to continue transforming us in the days ahead, both individually and collectively. Enable us to be responsive to your leadership in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.